Hello, I am Michael Penny. And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I shall be reading some of the scripture references. And I'm William Henry. In our last podcast, we finished up talking about Jesus' story about a fig tree that wouldn't produce fruit. Now, that fig tree was a picture. It was a picture of the nation of Israel in its lack of response to the Lord and his message. And that story is described as a parable in Luke chapter 13, verse 6. Yeah, that's right. And Luke recalls a lot of Jesus's parables, doesn't he? Yeah, not only Luke. In fact, all the gospel writers do. But Luke contains parables that are not recorded anywhere else. But um, what is a parable, actually? I know it's a story, but what makes a story a parable? Yeah, good question. It's a story, really, that tries to get a point across by using a comparison or using an illustration Somebody once defined it as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So are all these stories like allegories, where nearly every detail and character in the story corresponds to someone or something in real life? Well, sometimes, I think, but not always. I mean, some of Jesus' stories were allegories. The parable of the sower, for example. Um, each of the different kinds of ground correspond to different types of people who welcome the message to a greater or a lesser extent. But other stories that Jesus told really were just to get a single point across. Uh, like what? Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think. That was told in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And the point is, of course, that our neighbor is anyone who needs help, no matter who they are. Yeah. I suppose you can get into a mess when you start asking questions like, who does the innkeeper stand for? Or what do the two coins represent? Or how about this? Here's a good one for you. Who or what does a Samaritan's donkey represent? Well, well give me a minute and I'll think of something. Okay, okay. You've got, a, you've got a much better imagination than I have anyway. Hey, anyway, let's have a look at some of the parables in Luke. What about the one you just mentioned, the Good Samaritan? Yeah, this appears in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I think this is one of Jesus' best known parables, mm. but actually it only appears in Luke's gospel. Well, I suppose that's consistent with what we said before about Luke's emphasis on championing the outsider. And as far as the Jews are concerned, the Samaritans were certainly outsiders. Yeah, that's true. It's a well-known story. But as I said earlier, it was told by Jesus in response to a question he was asked. And we find this in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So it, it does seem to be a, a trick question. It says it was aimed to test Jesus rather than to get information. Yeah, and Jesus played the ball back with a straight bat. What is written in the Lord, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. That's verses 26 to 28. Well, that's exactly what the law of Moses says, isn't it? So no prizes for this expert in the law for guessing that. No. So the man pushed it a bit further, didn't he? 
but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? That's verse 29. So what do you think he means by wanting to justify himself? Hmm. Um, maybe he wanted to be able to boast about how generous he was in defining the boundary of neighbour. However, perhaps more likely he was a bit embarrassed because Jesus had answered the question that he, an expert in the law of Moses, had asked in such an obvious and simple way. So Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan to answer that question, who is my neighbour? Yes, yes, exactly. And it's a great story, you know. We all know the basic outline. A man, presumably Jewish, was travelling on the dangerous road from Jerusalem down to Jericho when he was attacked, robbed and left for dead. But then the possibility of help came along, as we read in Luke 10, 31 to 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Ooh, that's a bit callous, isn't it? I mean, why did they pass by and not help? Well, they may have been in a hurry, but I don't think that's a valid excuse. More likely it is that they, they thought he was dead already, or he may have been covered in blood. And under the law of Moses, they didn't want to get themselves contaminated, become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body or getting blood on their hands. Well, that may be a possibility, but we don't really know. It's a story and uh, and the story doesn't say why. Yeah, I suppose that's right. But, but then a Samaritan came by and he took pity on the victim. And verses 34 to 35 tell us what he did. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So who was the true neighbour to the man who was attacked? Well, obvious, isn't it, eh? But actually, it's a highly skillful narrative. If Jesus had made the victim a Samaritan who was helped by a Jew, perhaps by the priest or the Levite, that would have been challenging enough to the expert in the law. However, Jesus was showing his Jewish audience that God's care was to be extended even to a Samaritan. But by making the victim Jewish and the helper a Samaritan, wow, that was even more powerful. Yeah, it was, because Jesus had shown that the Samaritan understood God's ways much more than the priest or the Levite, who should have known better. What a lesson that must have been for the expert in the law who was asking the question, and all the other Jewish men too who were listening. Oh, yeah. And what about us too? Who are our Samaritans then? Yeah, that's a tricky question. Maybe our Samaritans are, are people who vote for different political parties from us, or people of different religions. Maybe we've all got different Samaritans. But it does show that God wants us to care for everyone. That's everyone without distinction. Yeah. The parable of the Good Samaritan was given in answer to the lawyer's question about who should, who should we consider to be our neighbours. And there are other parables Jesus told in response to what someone had said. For example, listen to this from Luke 15, 1-2. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus then told three parables, one after the other, that show the extent to which God rejoices when a sinner repents. First, we have the parable of the lost sheep. Then we have the parable of the lost coin. And then we have the very famous story of the lost son, better known as the prodigal son. Yeah, the first two parables are very similar, aren't they? The shepherd loses one sheep and the woman loses one coin. And they both go to search for what they've lost. And then after they're found, both of them call their friends and neighbours together to celebrate the success. Yeah. And the conclusions Jesus draws at the end of each story are basically the same. When the shepherd finds his sheep, we read this in Luke 15, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And after the woman finds the coin, Jesus says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over God, of God over one sinner who repents. And that's in Luke 15, verse 10. The story of the lost sheep is a bit weird, though, isn't it? I mean, here you've got a shepherd with 100 sheep and he loses one. So he leaves the other 99 in open country and goes out to find the one that's missing. Surely a shepherd wouldn't do that, would he? He'd be in danger of losing half of the 99 as well. Oh, half of the 99? Well, half of 99 is 49 and a half. Mm. It might be difficult to lose half a sheep, Well, But, you know, some of Jesus' parables do deliberately contain an element that is a bit unrealistic to make the story stand out. If people are interested in this, I have dealt with the unrealistic and extreme elements in parables in my book, The Purpose of Parables, which is published by the Open Bible Trust. Yeah, you get the same technique that Jesus used in the story of the prodigal son, where the father runs to meet his son. It's unlikely, I think, that a Jewish father would throw away his dignity like that. But the lesson from the two stories is basically the same, isn't it? The Lord really cares about people who have gone astray and is really overjoyed when they are found again. Yes, the Lord's message, like that of John the Baptist, was to call for people to repent because the kingdom of God was near at hand. Yeah, but what about the other 99 sheep then? I mean, Jesus says in, in verse 7 that they represent righteous persons who do not need to repent. So do you think they were really righteous or, or just thought they were righteous? I mean, was he speaking against the Pharisees, the teachers of the law? Because we read that they had been muttering about him being associated with tax collectors and so-called sinners. Yeah, you could have a good point there. He he could be speaking against the, against the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who thought themselves as righteous and did not need to repent, and they had refused to repent, if you remember, at the call of John the Baptist. Yeah. yeah, on the other hand, Jesus may have had in mind genuine believers who were already saved and so were genuinely, genuinely righteous. Yeah, you get a similar thought, I think, in the parable of the prodigal son, don't you? In that story, mm. there's also the older brother who never got lost, he stayed faithfully at home all the time, like the 99 sheep. 
Yeah. Okay. Let's have a look at the prodigal son. It's much more complex story than the lost sheep and the lost coin. See how it begins. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. That's in Luke 15, 11. Yeah, we, we tend to think about it being the parable of the one son, the prodigal son who wasted his father's money, but really it's about two sons. Oh, yeah, that's right. It is, isn't it? Yes. Anyway, the younger son asked his father for his share of his father's inheritance, and the father gave it him. And off he went to spend his money, see the world, and have fun. But the money was soon gone, and so were his so-called friends. And when he was in that far-off country, there came a famine, and he got hit really, really badly, and well, got to a very low point. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. That's in Luke 15, verses 15 to 16. You know, feeding pigs was one of the last things a Jew would want to do because pigs were considered unclean animals, weren't they? And as for eating pigs' food, oh, that must have been really horrific for him. Well, when I was a student, I worked on a farm, and one of my jobs was feeding the pigs with what we call pig swill. Have you ever fed pigs, Will? Uh, no, but I used to go to boys' camps many years ago. <laughs> were they that bad then? <laughs> yeah, that's the same time. Okay, so anyway, this younger son came to his senses and realised that even the servants in his father's house were better off than he was. Sensibly, he decided to go home, apologise and ask to be taken back on as a servant. But we know what happened. His father, who was obviously looking out for him, ran to meet him and welcomed him home as a son and organised a great feast to celebrate his safe return. So that's really the same message, isn't it, as the lost sheep? The same message as the lost coin. The lost had been found. The sinner repented. Everybody rejoiced. Yeah, exactly. This is what the father said to the older son at the end of the story. We have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's in Luke 15, verse 32. Okay, same message. Great rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents. He's forgiven, he's restored completely. But what about the other son, the older one? The story is about the man with two sons after all, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the older son is not happy. He's not happy that his younger brother should be welcomed back so freely. Just look what he says in Luke 15, verses 29 to 30. Look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. See how he describes his lost brother. He says, this son of yours, while the father, when he replies to him, calls the lost son this brother of yours in verse 32. Yeah, the Lord doesn't want people to have a superior attitude or feel self-righteous towards anyone who comes to him really repenting. I mean, Paul himself describes himself as the, the chief of sinners, doesn't he? If Jesus could forgive and save him, a man who imprisoned Christians and even had them killed, then he could surely forgive and save anybody. 
Oh, that's that's right. Yeah. The Lord expects us to be ready to forgive and welcome back those who turn away from their wrongdoings and look for forgiveness. Yeah, presumably the Lord was really thinking of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders here who were looking down their noses at his acceptance and associating of himself with tax collectors and sinners, as they called them. They were a really self-righteous bunch, these Pharisees. Mm. They seeing themselves as following God's law to the letter, unlike these sinners who were being welcomed by Jesus with open arms. Yeah, they did have that attitude, didn't they? But we mustn't forget that God really cares for the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders also. Remember, in the story, the father went out to plead with the older son to come in and join the feast, not to stay out in the field sulking. He didn't just leave him out there. But we don't know if he did come in, did he? No, we don't. It's a bit like the parable of the fig tree, which we spoke about earlier, which we talked about in our last podcast. Um, we thought about it. But the ending of that parable is left open. The stories don't tell us whether the fig tree produced fruit after more fertilizer was added or whether the older son went into the feast. So the offer was still open to the Jewish leaders to repent and turn to Jesus. Yeah, you know, these all these parables are, are really very skillfully told. They really get to the heart of what Jesus and his message are all about. But it's interesting that they all, or a lot of them anyway, seem to be prompted by what somebody said or a question Jesus was asked. Yeah, that's true. Um, the good Samaritan was told to answer the question, who is my neighbor? The three parables of the lost sheep the lost coin and the lost son were sparked off by the Pharisees complaining that Jesus was associating with sinners. Yes, Jesus deals with the situation by telling a really perceptive story that makes everything clear. Yeah, and here's another one. You're an accountant, Will, so this one is for you. It's on the subject of money. Oh, thanks, Mike. Right, money. Yeah, that's a thorny problem, isn't it? Money or the lack of it, or maybe even too much of it. Jesus told the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 that he was to give all his money away. Oh, gosh. I hope that is not a command for everybody. I, I don't think it can be. I think it's more to do with a person's attitude towards money and possessions. That's the important thing. That rich young ruler's money was an obstacle that prevented him from following the Lord fully. In Luke uh, chapter 12, I think it is, Jesus told a story about another rich person, this time a rich farmer. And again, the story was triggered by what someone in the crowd said to Jesus. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's in Luke 12 verse 13. Yes, he obviously thought he was being hard done by, didn't he? Well, maybe, yeah. But Jesus was not particularly impressed at the request. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? That's in verse 14. And then immediately Jesus went on to tell the story of a rich farmer who had become really complacent in his wealth. He had such a huge harvest of crops one year that he didn't have enough space to store it all so he thought about it and Luke 12 18 to 19 tells us what he decided to do this is what I'll do I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to myself 
You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. Yeah, that sounds a great place to be. I think most of us would love to be in that situation, wouldn't we? Well, in some ways, yes, but in other ways, no. Perhaps it's better to earn just a little more that we, than we need, than we need to spend. I don't want to be poor, Will, but I don't really want to be super wealthy either. It's nice to have that bit extra so that you can use it for the good of others, don't you think? Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. But anyway, let's get back to the parable. Verse 20 tells us what God said to the farmer. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Yes, we never know how long we have to live, do we? Yeah. So maybe he should have done what the rich young ruler was asked to do and given it all away. Well, at least give some of it away. But that's not really the point. Jesus draws the conclusion at the end. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself that is not rich towards God. That's in verse 21. So what do you think he means by rich towards God? Oh, well... Interesting, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, The Message, translates that verse 21 in this way. That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. Yeah, I think that's, that's the heart of it, isn't it? Filling the barn with yourself. You know, preoccupation with self. We live in a very self-centered society. Anyway, in verses 17 to 19, in the NIV translation, where the farmer is talking about himself. Have you noticed he uses the words I and my ten times in those three verses? Oh, that's a lot of me, isn't it? Yeah. But, but immediately Jesus starts to teach the disciples that they shouldn't worry about material things, but should trust in God to provide for them. Yes. There's a, there's a, there's an interesting connection between greed and worry. Someone once said that greed can never get enough, whereas worry is concerned that it may not have enough. And Jesus is really telling the disciples here that they shouldn't fret about these things. God provides foods for the birds. He provides clothes for the flowers. And we are much more important to him than they are. And Jesus finishes off by saying this. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. That's in Luke 12, verses 29 to 31. All these things will be given to you as well. So is he saying that if we follow him, it's a guarantee that we'll never go hungry? No, I don't think so. He's not quite saying that. Though I do think that our churches should never allow any of their members to be in serious need of food or other essentials. I think he's really talking about priorities, for immediately he goes on to suggest that they should be selling their possessions and giving to the poor, rather than hoarding. Listen to what the Lord says in Luke 12, 33 to 34. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what do you think treasure in heaven means? Well, <clears throat> I think treasure in heaven means the things that are valuable to, in God's sight, and which therefore should be valuable to us also, you know. 
As followers of Jesus, every time we choose to do an unselfish act rather than pleasing ourselves, I think we are building up treasure in heaven. Yeah, I guess that's what he's really saying. He's really saying that while some people put all their efforts into gaining wealth or money or success or status, we need to be putting all our efforts into becoming the kind of people God wants us to be, storing up treasure in heaven rather than accumulating treasure on earth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But mind you, it's sad that some of us put so little effort into becoming like Jesus and spend so much of our time on things like entertainment and other things. And and that, that they don't really matter in the final analysis, you know. Yeah, there, there's another parable in Luke 16, which also seems to tell us to get our priorities right. And that's the so-called parable of the shrewd manager. Oh, no. <laughs> that's a really strange and difficult parable. Oh, basically, the anti-hero of that story is an incompetent manager working for a rich master. He knows he's about to be sacked, so he went around doing deals with his customers to reduce their bills and to make them well disposed towards him after he has lost his job. Yeah, maybe he hoped one of them would give him a job then if he was redundant. Oh, I don't know, really? I wouldn't employ a chap like that, would you? Gosh. Probably not. Oh. But what's really surprising is what Jesus says about the master. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's in Luke 16, verses 8 to 9. Oh, I, I, I don't know what to make of this. It sounds as if the master may be as crooked as his manager was. But was Jesus really commending such a dishonest behaviour? It sounds to me as if he was. What do you think, Well. Well, I don't, I don't think he was. Surely not. I mean, it, was, it would fly in the face of everything else he said elsewhere. If you look at the end of the story, I think you see Jesus' conclusion in verse 13. You cannot serve God and money. And then immediately we read of the Pharisees' reaction to the story and to that final comment. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. That's Luke 16, verses 14 to 15. Yeah, I think it's that last comment that's really important, isn't it? What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So what might be regarded as treasure by some people, that's treasure for this life, it's not really valued by the Lord at all. Oh, well, it's uh, still not too clear to me. So what do you think uh, the meaning of this parable is? Well, I think there's there's three distinct points in this parable. First of all, the people of this world are often more committed to focusing on what's important to them than the Lord's people sometimes are on what should be important to them. So are people of the world better at prioritizing the things that help them to reach their aims? Are they are they better at doing that than believers are? 
Well, it's what Jesus seemed to be saying. It's a matter of priorities, isn't it? I suppose so. If we put as much effort into being holy as some people put into getting rich, we would be much closer to the Lord, don't you think? Yes, I think we would be. But I think the problem is that sometimes we've got a foot in both camps, haven't we? Sometimes we build up treasure in heaven by trying to be like Jesus, but at other times we're more like the people around us building up treasure on earth. So I think we've got to guard against having that attitude. Oh, that's certainly true. And so it has a similar message, I suppose, to the parable of the rich fool. But anyway, you said there were three points. So what's your second point on this parable? Well, the second point is that if we can't be faithful in small relatively insignificant things, then nobody's going to trust us with things that are really important. I think this is what Jesus says, in fact, in Luke 16, verses 11 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be entrusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Yeah. And and that is why I would never employ the shrewd manager. But faithfulness is no accident, you know. You have to work at it and put it into practice. People who are faithful and honest in small things will be faithful and honest in the big things. Yes, I think you see the contrast there in the middle of that quote we had, the difference between worldly wealth and true riches. If we are dishonest, like the man in the story, can't be trusted with money, then can we expect God to reveal his truth to us? No, I don't think we can. But anyway, what about the third point, Will? Well, we mentioned the third point a couple of minutes ago. You cannot serve God and money. This is how Jesus sets it out in verse 13 of Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's really difficult to know how we should live in relation to worldly wealth, isn't it? We have to pay some attention to these things. I mean, we have to manage them in a wise way. I mean, we've got families to support, we have bills to pay, and we have to decide how much money to give to our church and the charities and all other decisions like that. We need to make about money. It's not easy. Yeah, didn't we do a podcast about this earlier in our series on wisdom? Oh, yeah, it was. Yes, it was um, number four in the series, What is Wisdom? And it dealt with wisdom and money. Right. But this parable here is all about priorities, though, isn't it? The Lord wants us to put him and his kingdom first. That's what should be important to us. And it's what should direct our decision making in every aspect of our lives. Yeah. So Jesus has told two parables about wealth. One about a rich farmer who cared only for himself and lived in luxury. And the other about an employee who also concentrated on on himself. And and he did that by cheating his employer of money. Money, something the world values highly, but something that, if not used wily, God finds detestable. 
Yes, but there's another parable in Luke 16 as well, isn't there, about a rich man? And that's the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Oh, gosh. That, that's another very difficult parable and a very confusing story, which is often very misunderstood. So maybe, I think maybe we should leave our discussion on the rich man and Lazarus until next time. I hope you will agree with me. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.